Gilman Scholars, this is your captain speaking. Get ready for takeoff. Good morning, afternoon, and evening, listeners. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the A. Gilman Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Murray, and today I have a Gilman alumnus and first-generation college student at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater, Abraham Alvarez, joining me today. He's going to be shedding some light on his work with vertical and hydroponic farming, his research automated greenhouse competition grant, and with some major holidays fast approaching, many of which really surround this idea of massive amounts of food consumption. I also want Abraham to tell us a little bit more about food insecurities and food supply innovation, both here and abroad. Welcome to the podcast, Abraham. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, so hello, everyone. My name is Abraham Alvarez. And as Sarah mentioned, I'm a first generation college student and Gilman alum. So recently, uh, I studied in the Netherlands. The reason why I was so interested in studying the Netherlands was because I wanted to get into controlled environment agriculture. I wanted to really tap into the research that that country has done and network with some business professionals, some universities, and really make myself a better teacher so that I can help mentor students in that field. Um, should I talk about my un- experience at university or? Well, yeah, first, I mean, we have so much to talk about on this episode, so I'm super excited to have you today, especially I want our listeners to hear more about hydroponics from Milwaukee, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, but before we get ahead of ourselves, could you tell our listeners a bit more about this cross-section of business and environmental studies that you are currently pursuing at your undergrad location? Yeah, so um, currently I'm studying integrated science and business with an emphasis in water resources. So I'm looking at um, the cross-sections between business and environmental science from a a community development standpoint. I'm looking to integrate uh, hydroponic systems into urban areas to create more food security and also to create jobs in the communities while creating access to local food that's less harmful for the environment and ultimately tastes better and is more fresh. Those are some great goals. I feel like I, I, I foresee at least as being a widely appreciated initiative that I feel like any major city in the U.S. could benefit from. Um, but you continued these studies somewhat when you went to the Netherlands, like you've already mentioned, during your time abroad. And while your initial goal was to focus specifically on something you called controlled environmental agriculture, you somehow also divert a little bit to pursuing business courses mainly at the host university, but you found ways to externally still involve yourself in environmental agriculture. So what were your courses like? And I guess, how did you develop that unique path of still staying engaged with environmental studies while in the Netherlands? Yeah, so actually when I signed up for the course, for the exchange, um, the university that was offered in the Netherlands was Hogeschool Arnhem van Nijmegen. So it's a, a mix of Arnhem and Nijmegen, which um, I was at the Arnhem Business School. And then the Nijmegen school is more focused on applied sciences, but like, I liked how they were able to integrate um, environmental work into the finance, for example, like we developed a, a plan to install uh, windmills in cities. We had like a budget and we had to find the best windmill supplier and estimate the cost and return. Very cool. Yeah. So 
So even though I wasn't able to get like a science um, experience at the university, I was able to find uh, additional opportunities. I had been really connected with Wageningen University and research, um, because mostly because a lot of people in the vertical farming industry cite research from them or uh, have um, mm -hmm. talked about certain facilities in that university. So I was really interested in checking it out. So I saw that they were having a automated greenhouse competition. So I was able to sign up for that and Funny story is I was actually traveling a lot during that time. So I had just came back from London and literally the, that same day I was going to Wageningen for the automated greenhouse competition. Oh, wow. Oh, was, my goodness. Yeah, I was able to meet so many people there and really see that there are um, teams around the world who are um, developing new ways to make uh, agriculture more efficiently and to strengthen urban communities. So, for example, the project was working on um, like a new apartment complex, I think, in Guangdong, uh, China. So it was oh, like, wow. yeah, so it was like integrating vertical farming into the city. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was working with partners like Rabobank, and, who is like a large bank in the Netherlands and many huh, universities like Ohio State University and very cool yeah, universities in china as well so it was very wow. um global you could tell that um people from all over the world came to this university to talk about that specific topic oh, it seems very intercultural so great experience for you to have that's exciting and then how did you find that this cross-section between business and environmental agriculture benefited you upon your return to the united states yeah so upon my return it was a uh, I was only in school for like two months before COVID hit and everything started to close mm -hmm. down. But we were working on a project called Hydroponics for Milwaukee. And this is a mentorship program that um, me and my friend Michael Lozano uh, co-founded to um, increase STEM education in um, predominantly Latino or African-American communities um, to basically encourage students to find an interest in the STEM field and to ultimately mm -hmm. continue their education into a university or PhD degree. Oh, that's fantastic. That's really great. And then I know that when we spoke earlier, you talked a little bit about how while you were traveling around Europe, you were able to have a lot of um, observations and you were really traveling from a specific environmental consciousness lens, focusing especially on evidence of vertical farming and sustainability. And while I know that for Netherlands specifically, they have food deserts and food insecurities, just like we do in the United States. But as you were in the Netherlands and as you were traveling, what did you learn or observe about how the Netherlands approaches food management, desert, sustainability, everything? Within that realm. So yeah, this is actually the thing that interested me most about the Netherlands. Um, so compared to where I'm from in Wisconsin, um, you'll drive hours and just see fields of corn. It seems like um, we are having a decline in production because I feel like that type mm -hmm. of agriculture ultimately is not sustainable. It's going to like um, degrade the soil and it causes a lot of uh, algal blooms and freshwater bodies like Lake Michigan. 
So there are some environmental problems, and I see that with controlled environment agriculture, I feel like there's a little bit more that we can do about mitigating environmental um, risk. So the Netherlands also is very efficient in um, their use of land because um, they um, take big plots of land and convert them into multi-dimensional greenhouses. So you will oh, see wow. like, as far as the eye can see, just greenhouses. And if you, you're on the train, just driving past for like a good minute, you'll just see greenhouses. And what about any other countries that you, you had the privilege of traveling to? Did you notice anything else unique about how other countries approach food management or sustainability overall during your travels around Europe? Yeah, so actually, um, one of the first countries that I visited during my time abroad was Belgium. And they have actually one of the largest um, research facilities in the world for greenhouses. <laughs> yeah, and while I was traveling across Europe, I was just looking at the architecture and looking for possible mm -hmm. spaces that could incorporate this technology, just like with big open windows, like office spaces or... And that's ideal for vertical yeah. farming? Yeah. you would say so okay. um i was looking at so when i was in paris i noticed that they had a huge interest in like community gardens so i definitely mm -hmm. see that they have that interest in uh, food security and they're taking the steps towards um becoming like food independent and That's i also great. noticed in like germany they had a company called in farm which is doing a lot of work installing vertical farms over the next few weeks, across many backgrounds, people will be gathering to celebrate their respective holidays. And a lot of his gathering will include, you know, eating massive bounties of food. Um, but for those of for those of you who are privileged enough to have that as a luxury. Um, and just after the holidays, we'll actually also arrive at our one-year anniversary, if I can even call it that, of the first diagnosed case of COVID-19 in the United States. Could you talk to us a bit more about how the pandemic, frankly, is disrupting food supply and especially affecting food insecure populations and food deserts in the United States? So, yeah, I actually did a little um, market research yesterday. I went around asking different restaurants where they get their produce from, like their okay, lettuce. Wow. Um, so I asked some of the big chains like Qdoba where they get their um, lettuce from, and they mentioned they get it from California, but um, no idea. one time when I was presenting my research at Whitewater, um, a high school student who was um, visiting our university asked me, so what is um, vertical farming going to do about um, people who work in the agriculture industry, specifically like, like uh, farmers? And honestly, it got me thinking about the people who really do the work to put food on all of our tables, the people who um, work for little amounts of money to collect the lettuce or the strawberries or so that we can eat. Yes, yeah, so we can eat. So honestly, I feel like COVID has affected those people the most, but it has really started to reflect how um, fragile our supply chain is, how we need to have a localized way of producing food. And that even highlights more the importance of vertical farming and what you've been an advocate for so much. And so I think, yeah, I think you're right in that. I initially was thinking of it as just, you know, how people be able to get their food and how COVID is necessarily impacting the fact that, you know, grocery costs are higher. People are making less money currently. 
UN Food Program estimates that an additional 130 million people will be facing food insecurity by the end of the holiday season and the end of 2020. Um, but you bring up an important factor of the people who are even more so largely affected are the farmers who work day in and day out to create this produce that so many of us are privileged enough to eat, especially in such high quantities around the holidays. So thank you for also bringing up that perspective. We've spoken a lot about about um, vertical farming thus far, um, and obviously you're very passionate about it. That's like the core of what you think can help battle food insecurity, especially in dense populations like in larger cities. Could you actually really break down for our listeners specifically how and just the many ways that this breakthrough technology can help fight these food deserts that are prevalent not only in the U.S. but around the globe, even in countries like the Netherlands? Yeah, so actually, um, one of the things that I like most about indoor um, farming is how fresh the stuff is and how long it lasts. So usually when I buy lettuce, it wilts away by the third or fourth day in my fridge. Me too. <laughs> it's really expensive buying like um, like a box of lettuce every week and having it go, half of it go to waste. And Wasteful, exactly, that too. <laughs> like another big point that I want to touch on is food waste. If you're able to produce locally, there's more time that it will last fresh before it, it goes bad. For example, if it travels 3,000 miles and it has fluctuating temperatures throughout the process, there's possible that it can be contaminated for like E. coli or anything, but also can melt away and a lot of it goes bad. Would you say that financial investments are the major barrier to what's limiting vertical farming from really impacting and infiltrating these denser city populations that have lower income people that could ultimately benefit the most from it? Or is there any other barriers that you think could like people should be aware of? I definitely think that economics is a big part of it. My initial research when I started learning about vertical farming was the environmental and economic feasibility of it. So I was looking at like the energy use and also at the initial expenses. So that alone would deter many communities from investing in it. But I think there are systems that can be affordable. I worked with Stephen Ritz. He was the founder of Green Bronx Machine, and he donated a tower garden to our, our project at Escuela View Hydroponics from Milwaukee. Um, and that tower garden cost about $1,000. And at that time, we were operating as a totally volunteer organization, and we, were not, we did not have a budget to purchase a hydroponic system. Wow. So that was kind of a limiting factor of being able to teach the students about hydroponics was having a a proper system, but when he donated that system, it really sure. um, sped up the like like the learning curve. Do you do you think there's a way for people to? Because the financial aspect is a really big hurdle. But is there? Do you think that there will be a place in the future where, if there's enough widespread use of vertical farming, then individual startup costs will lessen more because people will be able to see the benefits of it, there'll be proof of it, and then just overall cost will reduce just from the sheer popularity of the systems. Yeah. So there's like there's actually um, I feel like LED lights are becoming cheaper. That's like one component of a hydroponic system. But also, um, I'm looking to create like a IoT platform that can control the different like um, equipment, like the sensors, the lights. Oh, wow. The pump, Sounds fancy. 
it sounds fancy, but really it's it's just putting it on a timer and monitoring gradual changes like temperature sure. or pH. But um, I feel like automating systems will make it more feasible because let's say I'm willing to invest 15000 to have a nice vertical farm in my garage or my backyard or living room or something. Um, I probably don't have the time or want to put the energy into maintaining it all the time. That's so fair. making it automated will make it more um, attractive for customers to invest into it because they don't have to put as much energy or time into like the labor aspect of it. Labor is probably one of the highest expenses when it comes to vertical farming systems. Mm. So reducing the labor cost would probably make it more efficient. What would you say that you hope is the future for either hydroponics from Milwaukee, vertical farming, your personal passions for the sort of international environmental sustainability? What do you hope the future is for all those things? Yeah, so I kind of, I'm looking to uh, see a future where the food chain is less decentralized. And I feel like it's more in the hands of the people. Kind of like uh, the Victory Gardens. I feel like uh, community gardens and uh, will really build resilient communities. So that's kind of where I see the, the future headed towards. But on a more personal note, I would like to ultimately be able to contribute to growing food in space. I know it sounds like <gasps> far ahead. Of, That'd be so cool. <laughs> it sounds like it's such, so far ahead in the future, but there are actually um, centers across the United States that are focusing on this. One example being University of Arizona. They have a controlled mm -hmm. environment agriculture center and they have a, a lunar greenhouse. So it's like potentially being able to grow food on the moon. That's insane. Yeah, so I would really love to be a part of that, kind of help push humanity to the next frontier. <laughs> I need you to be a part of this, Abraham. So that way we can say that a Gilman Scholar is literally part of a team that put food on the moon. Like that would be incredibly, like su such an incredible achievement and incredibly iconic. So I also hope for that for your future because that just blew my mind right there. Um, but I also wanted to talk a little, just a little bit more about hydroponics from Milwaukee, mainly because you spoke briefly about how the education component, but really the, the mentorship aspect of what you do is really near and dear to your heart. And I just want to hear from you, what have you seen has been the benefit of these students that have been involved in the program? Yeah, so me and my friend Michael Lozano, uh, I feel like we, all, we both come from kind of rough backgrounds, but we both turned our lives completely around mm -hmm. and have been able to make a positive impact. But one thing I noticed is that when we go to Escuela View, at first, when we first joined, some kids were like, they hated school, they had like a bad attitude. But every Friday, we consistently kept going to that classroom and teaching like for two hours every Friday. And you could tell that students were um, changing their attitudes. People who hated school now loved it. And you could really see like a happiness and feel the energy when you walk in the classroom. Everybody's face just lights up. They want to show you their progress. And it really, I feel like, transforms the mindset of these students and how they view education because they see a reflection of themselves in me, in Michael. And we've been in those shoes. I used to go to Milwaukee Public Schools. 
we, we try to make it a step further by uh, creating a, a summer camp as well. So um, Michael, he was able to secure, um, I think it was $70,000 in grant funding with the help of uh, pre-college programs and student diversity engagement success at the university. That's amazing. Go, go Michael. <laughs> yeah, go Michael. And also Pam, Pamela Warren, who is like a director of that program as well. Mm -hmm. um, we were able to run a summer camp for two years. It was two summers um, and we were able to work with like engineering, um, math, gardening, all types of uh, cool projects that hopefully strike the interest of these students to pursue engineering um, degrees or STEM, environment, the works. Exactly. That is amazing. I am I am truly so impressed and I would love to encourage you guys to come help out the public schools in New York City where I am from. I mean, students everywhere could benefit from, I imagine, your mentorship, but especially have, helping students have, an, in, I guess, an increased interest in school, but especially STEM and the environment going forward in the future. That's a topic that I think all students should be interested in. But unfortunately, that is all the time that we have for today, but Abraham, it was such a blast having you on the podcast. But before I officially let you go, could you tell me about a dream travel destination or international experience that you'd like to have in the future? Yeah, so when I was in the Netherlands, I traveled a lot with uh, some close friends. We went to many different places together, and I would really love to do like a reunion, uh, maybe in Thailand. I haven't really been to that part of the world and. I really like ex exposing myself to new cultures and just seeing um, the beauty in different languages, um, different cuisine, and also just seeing my friends again. It would be amazing. Yeah, the Gilman Scholarship, uh, I highly recommend anybody to apply for it. Um, if you're looking to change your life permanently, this opportunity, it will really um, expand your horizons and make you'll make connections that will last a lifetime for sure that was quite literally the best endorsement ever thank you so much um and abraham do you have um, a way for our listeners to get in contact with you after this episode airs yeah so i'm actually really active on linkedin uh, so if you want to find me um go look at me on linkedin my name is abraham alvarez garcia yeah thank you for having me Thank you for joining us, Abraham, and what an amazing way to conclude 2020. An even bigger thanks to all of our listeners who have made our podcast launch since July so successful. We could not be more grateful, truly. And don't worry, because we are bringing you new content and new guests starting in January. But until then, we want to hear directly from you. Leave us a review and tell us what you have been loving so far about the podcast, any topics you want us to cover, Oh, maybe even a guest that you'd like to have join us again. The options really are endless, and we want to hear directly from the people who this podcast is for. Lastly, be sure to follow the Gilman Scholarship on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, the works, so you are the first to know about when our next episode is dropping. Happy holidays, and see you in 2021. <music>